Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. I was out of country and I got back last night and I opened my inbox and I loved how many how many of you guys reached out and sent me your questions. My goal is to answer every single one of them. But unfortunately, I've, I've been falling behind because of like, I also have a clinical practice as well. My goal is to maybe next month do two episodes per week, one our usual interview and one answering the questions that you guys are sending me because I think the questions at times are very similar. So my hope would be if you're sending me a question and I'm answering it on the show, it will help many other people. If you send me a question, you don't want it to be featured, please let me know. The other thing I wanted to mention is that this week I'm going to release two episodes. I'll tell you what. I interviewed this wonderful sex coach and she talked about sex toys and she talked about all this wonderful strategies that she has about incorporating and encouraging people to use sex toys in the bedroom. I know that's something that many, many of my clients are struggling with. The reason I'm releasing it as a bonus episode is because she wanted to do video. I wasn't prepared to do video and the quality of the recording of the video part of it, it's not at the level that I I want it to be and it's not, I, I wasn't able to do the video part. So I thought the information is great. Uh, you guys are welcome to check it out. I encourage you to check it out. But again, since at times she's showing things, it would be better if she if we had the video. But if you are interested, you can still check it out. I'm thinking either to release it on Thursday or Friday. Today, we're going to talk about kinky individuals and their sex lives. I have a guest today that she, this is the, her area of a specialty, and we're going to talk about some of the sexual challenges that she sees in this population and how their challenges are similar and different than her non, non-kinky clients. Stephanie Gorlick holds a master's in social work from Wayne State University, where she specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy. She has over 15 years experience in working with poly-kinky individuals, swingers, commercial sex workers, and child and adult survivors of sexual trauma, including human trafficking. Stephanie has served as a guest lecturer on minority sexual communities at Northwestern University and is a frequent conference presenter on topics related to kink-aware practice and consent. An award-winning author, she's currently working on her second book entitled The Litter Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephanie. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Stephanie Gorlick on our show. Did I say your last name correctly? 
You did. <laughs> I was practicing it a few <laughs> seconds ago, <laughs> but sometimes I'm that bad with, uh, with names. Stephanie, welcome to our show. I'm very excited to have you on. I know that you work with tons of non-traditional couples in your relationship. So I'm kind of curious to understand and learn more about your approach with this community, this part of your practice. So what are some of the non-traditional relationships that you see in your practice? So I spent the first uh, decade, decade and a half of my career working with victims of sexual trauma. Uh, I originally specialized in working with pediatric sexual assault survivors, human trafficking victims, commercial sex workers. And after about 15 years of that, I decided that I wanted to work on the happier side of human sexuality. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Rather it's than- a long time to do that work. Yeah, and it had been so long that I had been working with people that sex had really been used as a weapon against. I wanted to help people build stronger relationships, whether that was with their partner, with their own body, with themselves. And so I've always been somebody that really tries to build bridges between marginalized communities and the mainstream. And eventually, over the course of my practice, it became really clear that there are whole groups of people who are really stigmatized. So um, swingers, uh, kinky folks, the BDSM community, polyamorous, I'm going to say couples, but that's very rarely too. Um, They're all stigmatized because of how they form romantic relationships, how they give and receive pleasure. And so it felt really natural that that would be the community and the populations that I would specialize in working with. And you're absolutely right about this stigmatized part of it. I live in LA and practice in LA and people think this is a more kind of open-minded community. But even here within the therapist community, I hear uh, lots of kind of negative stigma when it comes to working with non-traditional couples from my therapist friend and also this, this kind of way of thinking that this is not healthy. So I can yeah. imagine that if that's a mindset that you have, then that that can play out in the therapy therapeutic relationship in a negative way. So it's wonderful that that's the goal that you have is this kind of bridge this gap between the marginalized community and the rest of the population. And it's interesting that at times I get clients that they are living alternative lifestyles and they just come to me as a sex therapist because their issue is not sex at all. (laughs) They just want to go to someone that kind of is more comfortable working with, with those dynamics. So that's so unfortunate that people kind of need to kind of screen out to see who's safe to kind of like show up truly in a therapeutic relationship. And oh God, what a challenging job you have working with victims. (laughs) You know, I loved every minute of it. I genuinely believe that if you are capable of doing that work, then you almost have an obligation to do it because I don't want people that don't have that capacity to bear witness to suffering, getting in the middle of something where they're going to do more harm than good. So I really viewed it as almost a sacred undertaking. But after 15 years, it was time to find a new way to let that manifest for me. Well, I think the sacred undertaking is a <laughs> very accurate way of describing it. I remember right before graduate school, I worked at a group home with children who were removed from the houses because of the sexual assault they experienced and sexual abuse. And even until now, and I work in lots of different like challenging situations. I remember that was the toughest experience of my <laughs> career. So it's wonderful that you had the passion and heart to do 
that work and how wonderful that you were working with sex workers. I, but it seems like it was more from the trafficking angle versus like people who are like choose to become a sex worker. So I worked with both. And the sex work community is vast and diverse. Mm -hmm. Most of the women that I worked with, just because of the setting that I'm in, being based in Metro Detroit, were street-level sex workers. This was not necessarily a choice that they would have made if they had had other resources. Mm -hmm. And our agency and the program that I worked for at the time was one of the few that really took a harm reduction, non-stigmatizing approach and accepted that these individuals were making the best choices that they could for themselves with the time and the resources that they had available to them in that moment. And our job was simply to love them and empower them and support them in making the best decisions for them, even if other people might look at them and say, well, I would never do that myself. Right. And what a wonderful, empowering approach, as you mentioned, that was because sometimes, again, I know that there are, in, for example, in LA, there are women who choose to to get involved with sex work and that's their career and they feel passionate about it. But you're right, sometimes with some street workers is at times it comes from lack of option. So it's wonderful that they had that that place to come in and get help. Do you see still sex worker in your practice? So I see fewer now that I've gone into private practice than I did when I was working in the nonprofit sector. However, as you had mentioned with the idea of people coming to you for general mental health just because they know that you're going to be accepting of other areas of their life. I do have clients that come in that say, this is my career. I love it. I enjoy it. I chose it. That's not why I'm here. Mm -hmm. I'm here because I have anxiety or I just went through a breakup with my partner. And so I do get a very similar group that you get in that perhaps their sex work is not why they need therapy, but they want a therapist that respects their sex work. And it's so important to get connected with those services because I feel at times that people want to, again, not, not common, but I heard about the stories that people are therapists or their counter-transferences and their values get in the way of giving the help that people need. So, so I definitely agree with you on that. So tell us uh, what non-traditional couples that you're seeing, swingers, people that practicing consensual non-monogamy, what are some of the sexual challenges that you see in this population that are similar and different compared to the couples that you see that are in non-kink monogamous relationships? You know, I actually think that the groups are far more similar than people realize. Generally speaking, the issues that I see are universal, whether they're my kinky couples, my poly couples, my vanilla couples, they need help building trust. They need help processing and fidelity, um, building up their communication skills. A lot of the tools that I teach the couples that I work with are the same. I talk about negotiation, conflict resolution, boundary setting. I help them build a common vision for what they want from their future together. Sometimes what that looks like will vary from couple to couple. But the actual themes that I see in my couple's work is pretty consistent, almost irregardless of how their individual dynamic is structured. 
Right. And we talked about building trust. I think it's just a foundation of relationship. And many, even the club clients that I work with, they're in a vanilla monogamous relationship. They're struggling with trust, although there's nothing going on indicating that their partner is seeking someone else. And sometimes these are coming from their childhood or childhood wounds and attachment problems. But I believe it's, I can imagine that it's significantly more challenging to to kind of like work around jealousy when there are other partners involved in this kind of sexual play and in the relationship in some extent. How do you help people to work through that? To be quite honest, I wish that I could introduce my vanilla couples struggling with jealousy to my poly couples mm-hmm. because my poly couples generally have such a different understanding of what commitment entails, a different agreement around what it means to be loyal, what it means to be faithful. And they are able to watch their partners go on dates with other people, uh, form sexual romantic relationships with other people, form deep emotional bonds, and be happy about that, and really feel very strong and centered in what their relationship is. I often watch my poly couples in absolute amazement as they sit and talk through their feelings of jealousy, their feelings of possessiveness. And usually I don't have to do much of those situations. I can watch the jealous partner talk through it and almost talk themselves through it and really challenge their own thought processes and look at, you know, are these rational or irrational thoughts? What am I really scared of? Where is this truly coming from? And is that valid based on what I know about you and how you feel about me? And I think that they have this wonderful, almost intuitive process that I wish I could impart to more of my vanilla couples who might spend an entire hour, sometimes across several hours of sessions, asking, well, what was that phone call about? Well, why didn't you pick up? Or I get that that story makes sense to you, but it doesn't make sense to me. And therefore, you must be doing something behind my back. And the, the mindset between the two groups is so very different that I almost wish there was a poly mentoring program for vanilla couples. Right. That would be lovely. And I feel like working with non-traditional couples, I learned a lot as a clinician, as a person, (laughs) because I am in a monogamous marriage, but like sometimes the the level of care that people show with with their partner, my client at least, is just when they're allowing the partner to be kind of exploring sexuality outside the relationship. Obviously, this is something that's negotiated prior and it's just so beautiful. It's, it's so wonderful. I was just talking to one of my clients a few weeks ago and he was telling me that they are in an open relationship and his partner brought another man in the house and he was worried that like the dog they had was interfering with, with the partner's sexual activity. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, oh, I wish I knew in advance I could, I could kind of take care of the dog. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool <laughs> that people at times have that level of uh, care for their partner. And again, I work with, with him for years now. I know it's just not a front. So how can we uh, work through that? Like how on the individual level do you think people are able to reach that? So I think the key, whether we're talking about poly people or 
kinky people is this emphasis on communication that we don't always find in vanilla relationships. The level of transparency and disclosure and processing is really remarkable within these communities in a way that we don't necessarily see or consider normal in the mainstream. The idea of using a post-coital pillow talk to be like, okay, give me feedback. What worked for you? What didn't work? Was that too fast, too slow, too hard, too rough? That does not fit sort of the romantic comedy movie ideal of what a relationship looks like. And so a lot of sort of heteronormative, vanilla, monogamous couples don't do that. The poly couples, the kinky couples, they do it because it's a part of fostering that dynamic. It's a part of cultivating that bond. And I think that if we could get more people talking openly, being comfortable saying, I feel jealous right now and I get that that's probably irrational, but I need you to know where I'm coming from because I need reassurance right now, as opposed to, well, your story didn't make sense, so clearly you're hiding something and going immediately into this sort of accusatory narrative building. I think that if we could just teach all couples to have the, the level of radical communication and honesty that the more marginalized sexual populations do, that the world would be a better place for everybody. Absolutely. And I love the idea of the radical communication and giving feedback to the partner because there is not one script that people are supposed to follow because, as you said, because of media and how the sex education is, people think uh, there is this script that's supposed to work for everyone and kind of think that like, okay, like he needs to know or she needs to know what's, what's helpful and what's arousing and what's wonderful sexually for me. And they're just, they think if they are giving this feedback or they, there is a need to give feedback, there is something wrong. And as, you, as you're saying, like I see that in the, the King community, at least in my BDSM clients that who are doing BDSM, they're telling me that like they, they do lots of negotiation and communication and that's what makes the sex great because you, you let the partner know what works and what doesn't work. Absolutely. And that extends beyond sexuality. I mean, it's just how we... Um, interact with each other in relationship. One of the things that's really important in BDSM and kink play is this idea of headspace, of getting into a dominant headspace, a submissive headspace, and being able to talk to each other afterwards and say, you know, you use this word or you use this phrase or you called me this name and that really put me there or that pulled me out of that mind space and it, it made me feel upset or it made me feel just out of it. Being able to have those conversations in a normal everyday vanilla context can be just as beneficial if we think about cultivating our relationships as a form of headspace. I want to feel connected and engaged and present and loving and loved. So what do I need from you and what do you need from me in order to cultivate that? That's an active conversation that I don't think a lot of people think to have. What a nice way of putting it as a headspace. I, I never thought about it for my kind of monogamous, more vanilla couples, but it, it absolutely makes sense. And it's so important to support the partner about talking about what would put you in that 
that space and what would you need without kind of talking about like getting overwhelmed by shame spiral and feeling that kind of the partner needs to know or kind of kind of feeling that what you need is not matching the societal expectation from your gender or sexual orientation so i love the idea of the headspace that you mentioned i know big part of you is uh, creating awareness around kink awareness and so tell us what does it mean to be kink aware so for me to be kink aware simply means that we've developed a basic understanding of the bdsm and kink communities uh, we might expand that umbrella to the poly and swinging communities but kink aware it's more specific to bdsm and kink it's a cultural competency as much as anything else it's understanding the language they use the vernacular the terminology the hierarchies the the culture of these people is completely separate from what they're doing in the bedroom. In my own practice, I prefer to use the term kink affirming because I think that involves taking that knowledge, that awareness, and applying it in ways that directly benefit our clients. So it's integrating their kink identities, their kink practices into their treatment and recognizing ways that BDSM can have a really positive therapeutic and relational benefit. I have met and worked with a lot of therapists, you've mentioned this yourself, who kind of start from an assumption that if somebody's kinky, it's a form of sublimation. They have trauma or they're narcissistic or low self-esteem or any number of things. Very rarely do we start from an idea that this is wholesome and helpful and beneficial. And so my goal when I'm working with clients, when I'm doing case consultation with peers, is to help my colleagues recognize that for a pretty sizable percentage of people, BDSM is a way to form a connection with their partner. It's intensely satisfying, it's intensely pleasurable, and it's not necessarily a manifestation of mental health concerns. This is their normal, this is their healthy. And how can we use that to improve their lives and their functioning across multiple life domains? And I love the strength-based approach that you have and also even not looking about it, looking at it as kind of like accepting it, but also incorporating it in the treatment plan. I think that's that can be very empowering. What are some of the things that you believe it gets in the way of therapist, provider, kind of working with this population from, from the lens of kink awareness? I think a part of it is the stigma. We often have a very limited understanding of the kink community. It tends to come out of pop culture and it tends to manifest either as the leather clad whip carrying villain of the horror movie or this sort of pseudo abusive perverse domestic Fifty Shades of Grey sort of I'm not a fan of that movie. It's dysfunctional way. Yeah. But that those tend to be the two things we see. We see BDSM used as code for evil and villainy. And we see BDSM presented in a way that's romantic but dysfunctional. And because of that, a lot of therapists don't have much real world experience dealing with healthy, functional collaborative, engaged kink couples and BDSM practitioners. I remember 
when I was doing my sex therapy training during the SAR weekend, mm -hmm. we spent um, five days learning about all different populations. We watched videos of individuals with developmental disabilities talking about their sexuality, and my cohort was moved. We saw videos of a couple in their late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. being together and sharing that intimacy. And my cohort was deeply emotionally moved. Then we got an hour on people with fetishes and people with kinks. And my cohort was giggling. And my cohort was whispering. And my cohort was making jokey comments. Mm -hmm. And that really sat with me because... If, if we as sex therapists, if we as sex educators are not able to embrace this population with the same respect, emotional maturity, and support that we give all of our other groups that we work with, then why would they come to us? Mm -hmm. It could be as simple as anxiety, but if I'm dealing with social phobia and I'm afraid that my clinician is judging me because I call my boyfriend, sir, I'm not going to get the support that I need for my anxiety. <laughs> That is so true because when I took SAR, I had the exact same experience. And I, I think the person who ran my SAR was very, she's very passionate about this work. She brought a panel. It was very immersive, but you're right that there at times it doesn't get the same level of attention or like people are, they don't see it as a kind of personal expression as person and also person's identity the same way that they would they would kind of view other aspects of sexuality and also there's this mindset of it's kind of rooted in trauma and it's a trauma enactment that can be very invalidating for clients who are coming into us because if you're thinking this is a pathology and dysfunction then as a therapist maybe you you would tend to focus on correcting that but what I'm hearing and also what I see in my practice is that for many people, it's, it's part of their identity and that is what's empowering for them. So who are we as therapists to kind of dictate uh, what's right for people and what's, what is not healthy? Absolutely. The, the latest research is showing that anywhere from 2 to 5% of the population identifies BDSM and kink as their sexual orientation in the same way that somebody will say I'm bisexual or I'm heterosexual, two to 5% of people are saying I need kink in order to have a healthy sex life. That is how I express myself sexually. That is me. And two to 5% of the population is every redhead, every lefty, left-handed person. And imagine if we as clinicians were to say, okay, redheads, I get that you, you know, you're dealing with some depression, work's been hard, relationship changes are happening, but I'm really going to need you to shave your head or like diet brunette before I'm able to see you. Because this redheaded thing, it's just, it's, it's way too extreme for me. That is, what a beautiful analogy. <laughs> But that's what we're doing to our kinky people. And not everybody that engages in kink play views it as their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. But 2 to 5% of people do. And that is a not insignificant number. 
Absolutely. And I think part of it also is rooted in culture. But what considered kinky 60 years ago, it's right now could be mainstream. And sometimes it's, I work with older clients that I hear what they kind of think that they thought it was kinky. Now it's just part of everyone's sexual script. So it's interesting how people's like sexuality and what, what we consider kinky and vanilla changes and switch over time. So is there any other misconception that you see that some other therapists might struggle with when they work with this population that we haven't talked about? So one of the things that I always like to stress when I'm doing case consultation or a conference presentation is being able to do an accurate risk assessment and really being able to differentiate consensual power exchange, consensual sensory exchange from domestic violence. I think often we see patterns of behavior that as clinicians we've been trained to recognize as intimate partner violence that in a different context can be negotiated, can be agreed to, and can be quite pleasurable. I had a client once that I was working with and I pulled out the sort of standard wheel of power and control to use as a teaching tool and she's looking at it and she gets very quiet and she looked up at me and she goes, I have to tell you, a lot of this stuff sounds really fun. (laughs) (laughs) And so being prepared for that, being able to, to know how power exchange can become coercive, what that might look like, and what might be viewed as coercive in a vanilla context that our partners find or our clients rather find enjoyable and an integral part of how they connect to their partners and their relationships. So how can a person, a therapist, differentiate that? So I look for things like um, isolation. Mm -hmm. Um, That is something that's consistent between both vanilla and abusive kink dynamics. When they start saying you are not allowed to connect to your family, you are not allowed to socialize, you're not allowed to cultivate friendships, that's problematic. When I hear stories of a dominant partner punishing their submissive out of anger as opposed to out of negotiation, that can be problematic. Inappropriate punishments, withholding food, withholding water, withholding rest, those are huge red flags. That's just a few. I, I cover more in my book. I actually have an entire chapter on doing a kinky risk assessment. But it's important that clinicians in general recognize that just because something makes us uncomfortable on the surface or it falls outside of what we would want for ourselves in our relationships doesn't necessarily mean that it's inherently problematic for other people. Well, I love that you, in your book, you mentioned that you have a way for people to kind of develop some understanding of how they can do the assessment. Because I think in defense of many of my colleagues, we, like I, I did like eight years of uh, graduate school, I had one undergrad class on human sexuality (laughs) and nothing else around sex or sexuality. Even when they were covering DSM, which is our diagnostic book, it was Mm -hmm. kind of glance over sexual, sexual dysfunction, sexual challenges. Like it wasn't, so I don't feel like people, it's not like they were taught 
what to do, how to assess, what to do with sex and sexuality with good clients. And on top of that, working with alternative couples and BDSM couples, I I believe it requires an additional training than uh, just basic sexual information. And I'm so grateful that you are. Have you published the book yet or it's publishing? It is currently with the publisher. And it should be out sometime either late next fall or next winter, I believe. I don't have a definitive publication date yet, but it is under contract and it is going to come out in the next year or so. How exciting. I'm so looking forward to learn more about about the book and all the wonderful content you have in it. So if our listeners, meanwhile, want to kind of understand more about your approach, learn about your practice, where would be a good place to get a hold of you? So my website is bounditogethercounseling.com. I see patients throughout the state of Michigan. I have offices in Metro Detroit. I also offer telehealth. So as long as they are within the state of Michigan, I am able to see them. I offer case consultation for colleagues of mine who may have a Kiki client or a BDSM couple or a poly or a swinger family that has come to them um, and they need additional insights, some clinical tools and insights. I do offer case consultation and I often have lovely conversations with people like you. So researchers, reporters or journalists that are working on stories around this community, um, I'm often um, consulted there as well. So the best way to find me for any and all of those is through my website, which again is bounditogethercounseling.com. Excellent. So guys, I leave the link, the information in the show notes. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for your willingness, for sharing your experience with us. It was absolutely my pleasure to have you on the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much for tuning in to our conversation. And I loved it when Stephanie was talking about how she wished there was a mentoring program from some of the poly and kinky clients that she was working with uh, for vanilla couples. Because I, I, as a clinician at times, get very challenged and moved by how great of a communication many of the couples I see that belong to these communities have and how much love and uh, respect they have for each other. Obviously, within the community, there is a range of different kind of levels of trust and communication and all of that. But it's so interesting and refreshing to see that people are are in kind of open relationships. They are allowed to be with other partners and they choose to be with their with their primary partner or continue their strong attachment with their partner because some of the fears that people have in the vanilla relationship, which again, I'm, I'm part of a, in a monogamous marriage, is that if I let my partner think about someone else or talk to someone else or perhaps flirt with someone else, then this, this bond that we have will break and things will not be the same. And it's it can be magical to see that people are are allowed in some some structures to go out of the marriage and relationship and to continue to stay together for years and years. Anyhow, at the end, I also wanted to remind you guys that I've been getting lots of questions and I love answering questions for future episodes. So if you have any questions that you want me to answer, I would appreciate it if you go 
to the website. There is this blue tab that you can record your voice or you can email it to me. I think recording the voice would be much better because we can, we get to hear uh, your story from you, but either way could work. I love you and thank you so much for tuning in to this week's show. Take care. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.